Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Lenarduzzi, an editor at the TLS, and I'm joined by our art editor, Lucy Dallas, who, having over the past couple of weeks tackled the old and the new, is this week going to tell us about something blue. Lucy. Hi, Thea. I'm a fr- I really did try. I'm not being um, difficult on purpose, but I couldn't think, I couldn't think of anything blue. No, I've I mean, it was category. quite a specific category. <laughs> I've got a new one, though. Go on. Which is most and least favorite word at the same time oh this is this is in the in the tls this week so this is for a, a review on my arts pages a very good review of the uh, film the the devil all the time mm. you know it's a kind of gothic oh with um, um robert pattinson yeah and tom holland and lots of very it's good an people. adaptation of a novel yes it is yeah and our own george berridge wrote a very good review of it but in it he describes see if you can work out which word i mean I think he's made it up. Uh, I hope he has. I, don't, I hope it doesn't already exist. He describes one of the characters is a delusional preacher with a penchant for arachnodramatic sermons. Isn't that brilliant? Um, what, can you not guess which one? Spiders. <laughs> An arachnodramatic sermon. I just, I just think that's so brilliant and so terrifying at exactly the Wait, same Wait, that's time. George's invention? I think so. I don't know. I've never heard it before. Have you? No, it does. It's very, it's very strong. <laughs> but you know, you know what it means immediately. <laughs> just, it's just a brilliant word. I'm going to say, well, if I wasn't so scared of spiders, I would either do it or say it all the time. I suspect you do do it when you see a spider. No, but I think you, no, I think you're using the, the arachnid for dramatic effect. Or that's what, how I interpret it to mean. There, probably, there can be many interpretations, maybe. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> that's my thing. It's not blue. <laughs> it might be. Who knows? <laughs> Possibly not. Anyway, yeah. uh, now I'm going to bring in 
borrowed things. A few days ago, having decided on our lineup for this week's show, I asked on Twitter for scenes and details pertaining to food in literature and there was a lot of it. Uh, a few people pointed to the buff ondorb at the heart of to the lighthouse with its exquisite scent of olives and oil and juices, confusion of savoury brown and yellow meats and its bay leaves and its wine, uh, a dish which takes the cook three days to prepare from a recipe passed down by Mrs. Ramsay's grandmother and it's treasured and much talked about in the novel. So it's this meal which must be served at the precise moment it's ready that brings the novel's characters and themes like swirlingly together. Um, that's a very fancy and highbrow uh, But I know you've thought about it because I have, we've discussed I it. I know. The, the one that immediately springs to mind for me is the pie that Danny has in The Champion of the World. I'm sure I've said that before because that, 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 yes. that, that made a real impression on me. Um, but somebody else wrote in, Alex Diggins wrote in with a slightly different one, um, lower to the ground, shall we say, but not, you know, uh, none the worse for that because he's talking about Tolkien's advocacy you could say via the excellent hobbits of second breakfast which as we all know is the best meal of the day and I had a little look into this like a nerd because I knew it came up but I couldn't really remember where you know in the hobbit the dwarves make a terrible mess and go off in the morning and he thinks oh well that's that done and he washes up and he sits down and has breakfast and then the sun comes out so he goes into his other room and it says he's just sitting down to a nice second breakfast and then Gandalf comes in and says off you go, let's be having you. Uh, and the whole thing starts. And it, it, it's sort of mentioned in The Lord of the Rings, but not so much. I and think. don't hobbits have to eat something like seven meals just to keep going, seven meals a I day? I think, yeah, I think Tolkien said they, yes, they are, they are up to six or seven meals a day. Like, I mean, like every sensible person, frankly. <laughs> yeah. This is perhaps actually what Iris Murdoch was getting at in, uh, in The Sea, The Sea, which was flagged to me by two people, um, by B.D. McClay and Jenny Judge. Um, and, and so the, the playwright protagonist opines that one of the secrets of a happy life is continuous small treats. And if some of these can be inexpensive and quickly procured so much, the better. Amen to that. Um, Thomas Pynchon's Banana Breakfast in Gravity's Rainbow also made a few appearances. And I thought, maybe, Lucy, if I set the scene, you could read it out for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll have so, a go. <laughs> so, um, so it's the Second World War. Well, it's drawing to a close. Uh, Captain Geoffrey Pirate Prentice puts on an interesting spread uh, for his group, making use of the abundant bananas that he has grown himself on his roof. So what do we see? Banana omelettes, banana sandwiches, banana casseroles, mashed bananas moulded in the shape of a British lion rampant, blended with eggs into batter for French toast, squeezed out a pastry nozzle across the quivering creamy reaches of a banana blancmange to spell out the words, c'est magnifique mais ce n'est pas la guerre, Tall cruets of pale banana syrup to pour oozing over banana waffles. A giant glazed crock where diced bananas have been fermenting since the summer with wild honey and muscat raisins. Up out of which, this winter morning, one now dips foam mugs full of banana mead. Banana croissants and banana creplac and banana oatmeal and banana jam and banana bread. And bananas flamed in ancient brandy pirate brought back last year from a cellar in the Pyrenees, also containing a clandestine radio transmitter. Thank you. There is no easy segue from such a scene, but still, I shall try. Later on in this week's episode, we'll be talking to Russell Williams about the Belgian writer Jean-Philippe Toussaint, a quiet, totemic figure in French literature. But before that, the reason for all this terribly arduous food research, we are joined by Norma Clark, who has written an excellent piece on literary food studies, 
or foodie literary studies in this week's TLS. Norma, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be with you. Um, well, Susanna Crossman pointed out to me um, Borges's line. She said, uh, she quoted him saying, I owe my first inkling of the problem of infinity to a large biscuit tin <laughs> that was a source of vertiginous mystery during my childhood. <laughs> and you, you, I mean, that's very Borges, but you, you start your piece with a, a similar recollection, something of a a lesson in life via food. Yes, I, 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 when I was reading these books, I found that um, I was insistently remembering this scene from when I was about six. And I was in Greece, because my mother's Greek, and we'd gone over to stay with her mother. And my aunt said one morning, come down to the yard and we'll, I'll show you something that will, that will be fun. And they kept hens in the yard and she started chasing two hens, which didn't seem all that much fun to me, but it, you know, it was fine. But then she caught one of the hens and she wrung its neck. And that was when the fun part began, because she said, now watch, the hen will carry on running with its head hanging off, um, which was absolutely horrific, <laughs> and which is you know, clearly why I, why I remember it. But there's a a passage in the story, a story by Catherine Mansfield, where something like that happens. The children are shown by the Irish handyman, Pat, I quote, how the kings of Ireland chop off the head of a duck. And it's a similar scene. So the children watch the duck then walking around like a little railway engine without its head. And then I particularly like the line that Mansfield um, comes up with to describe the duck when it appears in a in a dish for dinner, uh, where she says um, it was lying in beautifully basted resignation on a blue dish. I just think that's a, a brilliant line for um, for the duck. Well, the, the duck didn't have much choice, did it, other than to, to be resigned? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, yeah, so I mean, a lesson in life whose full import you probably didn't fully acknowledge until many years later. Um, Borges with his, his biscuit tin, he, I mean, he's talking about an actual biscuit tin there, uh, I think, but there's something quite Wonderland-ish about his description. Um, Catherine Humble in her book, one of the books that you cover, The Literature of Food, she's particularly good on the role of food in children's literature, isn't she? It's a very rich area. She is, um, and I think that many of us um, when we think about descriptions of food that we've read in books, it's children's books that we're recalling. I mean, you know, Enid Blyton with you know, all that ginger beer and um, and buns, and Secret Garden, um, where the rich children up at the big house are fed buns by Dickens' mother, who's already got thirteen children to feed, but never mind. Um, and also, one of the things that, um, it's Nicola Humble, by the way. Um, one oh, of, sorry, Nicola. Yeah, Nicola. One of the things that she talks about, which I think is also really interesting, is the recurring motif of the fear of being food, which you, you have you know, famously in Beatrix Potter's The Tale of Peter Rabbit, where Peter's father's fate very casually introduced he was put in a pie by Mrs. McGregor. Um, and, and she talks about how we encourage children to identify imaginatively 
with the very animals that get that we you know, that that we that we kill for food. And I'm sure that you know, most parents, I certainly remember this moment. Most parents find themselves being challenged by children when they make that moment of recognition. And you know, and, and realize that the you know the bit of lamb on their plate was the same creature that was running around in the field and looking so sweet and cute earlier on. It's always a big moment, that isn't it? And so it, it's often a moment of horrified realization. And we do. I mean, I think you say in the piece we do encourage children. You know, we put pictures of lambs and ducks, and all the stories are about ducks and you know sheep and and and, and little pigs and things uh, so there is a, a big um disjunct there i guess yeah there is and 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 then you think about stories um you know like fairy tales that you know, weren't of course originally written for children anyway but fairy tales like hansel and gretel where hansel's in the in the cage and being fattened up to be eat eaten um and all of that or you know, Little Red Riding Hood. Um, so you know, so there's. I think the point about all of this is that um, is that food, the, the kind of feelings and emotions around food, are a real mixture of you know the comforting, the pleasurable. You know, food is is you know, making you strong, but also there's there's violences, ambivalence, um, and in in the things that we've been talking about in relation to children and what Nicola Humble says a significantly sadistic element in 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 these practices. Is that part of what um, Nicola Humble's getting at when she she describes food and literature as as being often disruptive? I think so I think she is Um, and that it kind of takes up more space in your mind than 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 you really think it should but at the same time that it's sort of under analyzed yeah and i think she's right in that well it's true and i mean because it's so i mean it's so versatile it can be symbolic as well as real it can be used for mood for plot for character psychology and once you start looking for it you you, you see it everywhere don't you absolutely absolutely and strangely and i think that um one of the people who captures that which i do quote in the in the review though it wasn't in any of the books is Sylvia Plath. I mean, there's that wonderful description in Sylvia Plath's journals where she's describing a day where she was absolutely frenzied with exhaustion, and it's just one of those mad days. And the entry in the journal begins with the words, joy to murder someone. And, and then it goes on, baked a lemon meringue pie, cooled lemon custard and crust, on cold bathroom windowsill, stirring in black night and stars. <laughs> I just think that is absolutely brilliant, terrifying somehow. That, you know, that the stirring in of the black night and the stars, it's a bit like, you know, the witches in Hansel and Gretel and all those other monstrous mother figures. In, um, in literature. It's also um, very impressive on a day when you want to, you start out wanting to murder someone in that day to make a lemon meringue pie, just, just to bring it more down to a basic, a basic level. I'm very impressed by that. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, pres- presumably, Norma, um, part of the reason this piece was 
I think quite challenging uh, to write was because food intersects with so many other areas that take us well and truly beyond uh, the literary realm. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, and these books were doing that. So what I thought I was going to be getting when you said, oh, I've got all these books on food <laughs> in literature. I suppose you're Elizabeth David, MSK Fisher, that generation of people who wrote about food as a cultural, as was well as an element of culture. Um, and you could lie on a sofa and read them and yeah, and it was really lovely. Um, these books weren't like that. One of the things that struck me quite early on was how you know, the dark side was so present in the ways in which these authors were thinking. Um, the word horror kept coming up. It was less about gastronomy and more about scarcity and famine and food security or lack of food security um, and ultimately also climate catastrophe. I mean, it, it, that by, by looking at systems of food production and food distribution, um, you're also looking at the major developments of the last couple of hundred years that have taken us into this condition that we're now in. Um, well, uh, tell, us, tell us about Jessica Martel's book, um, Farm to Fork. Yeah, farm, Sorry, Farm, farm to, to form. form. Farm to Form. Um, this is modernist literature and ecologies of food in the British Empire. Absolutely fascinating uh, set of studies of um, four modernist authors, most mostly Hardy, Comrade, E.M. Forster and Virginia Woolf, but looking at them in the period of modernist literature coincides with the establishment of global industrial food chains. So what she's interested in is trying to see the ways in which those authors are using food to tell us something about this larger picture. And I've put that in a much more simple way than, you know, she's writing in a more subtle and sophisticated way, but that's essentially what, um, what the book is about. And I found it fascinating, I have to say, um, to find that um, looking at Howard's End by E.M. Forster, the, the cultivated Schlegel girls um, get to know the business-oriented Wilcox family, and uh, Margaret Schlegel gets engaged to Mr. Wilcox, can't remember his first name, and he takes her to Simpsons on Piccadilly for a meal. And the thing about Simpsons is that it was, it advertised itself and was famous for the carvery. This is, you know, this is Edwardian England, so it wasn't so common then, where the, the waiters would come and they would carve the meat at the, at the side of the table. And Helen, I mean, Margaret doesn't much like that. She'd rather eat fish anyway. But the, the point about Simpsons is that it promoted itself as being very British and the likelihood is that in any case that meat was New Zealand meat. And so I mean I, I, I guess this this becomes a way of, of conveying um, a lot about empire and Britain's relation to yeah. its colonies. No, that's right, indeed it does, but also about the, the, the propaganda and the media of the time. 
which is saying this is fresh from the farm, this is new season's lamb, as if it's coming from, you know, a field 30 miles away, and nothing of the sort. You know, it comes all year round. And similarly, in, in some of the other books I was, um, I was looking at for this review in America, a, a similar kind of romanticism, pastoral imagery, to suggest something about what food meant when the reality is that you've got these huge sort of wastelands of, um, of fields upon fields upon fields where workers are being exploited and um, you know, cheap labour and also where they're, uh, where they're injuring themselves and there's high rates of death and you know, all, you know, all that sort of thing. A, a distorted and highly mechanised um, pastoral yeah, exactly, exactly. There's plenty more um, on the kind of explicit intersection of food with politics in the Cambridge Companion to Literature and Food. And I mean, that's quite an event for, uh, for a field such as food studies uh, or literature and food to get its own companion. It is. And it's especially good, it sounds, it sounds like, from, from the way you write about it, it sounds like it's especially compelling when it comes to famine and hunger. I think it is. There are some, there are some particularly strong essays in that Cambridge Companion. And it is a mark, you know, when um, an area of academic study, which is essentially you know, what all of these books are, when it gets its companion, then that's a way of saying you know, it's arrived. And there's some strong essays about, you know, the Irish famine, but less well known, I think, are the famines in Bengal, uh, and again, with similar ways in which the British government, the colonial British government, can be held responsible for their behaviour in you know, making it worse. There's another um, sort of category that you were that, that you talk about in the piece of of food writers, which is quite a recent category, isn't it? Um, I think one of the authors talks about them. Um, those figures like, uh, as you say, Elizabeth David and MFK Fisher that we have a particular idea about. Um, and I wonder what you think about them, because it seemed to me that with MFK Fisher, for instance, remember an essay she does where she just discovers crisps for the first time. <laughs> it's really brilliant. She's waiting for her husband to go out for dinner. Uh, <laughs> and and the cook has just obviously kind of made you know just got got potato chips and and you know fried them or whatever very very thin yeah got a glass of really nice red wine and this big bowl of these crisps and she just thinks they're so delicious yeah and she eats all of them and then her husband comes down and she can't eat dinner and he's really cross <laughs> she goes oh but they were so nice <laughs> yeah it's the it's the anecdotal that works so well isn't it you know you you, you kind of you get a, an insight into someone's life as well as um, thinking about recipes or you know, new kinds of food. As you quote her from saying, she's not, or, or she said that, I think, she's not just writing about food, she's writing about love and hunger and freedom and independence and curiosity and all sorts of but things. She was sort of, she was sort of the person who, who had to do that. It sort of wasn't really acceptable before she made it so. I think that the Brits looked to her as an American to loosen us up almost. Well, I... I think that's true, um, and I think as someone points out, I can't remember who it is, but in um, in America, yeah, it just wasn't the done thing to talk about food. Um, food, you know, the preparation of food was done by your servants, or you know, previously, of course, your slaves, um, in a room that you didn't really concern yourself with. So it wasn't good form to talk about food, and that's a that's a massive cultural change when you think. 
how much people talk about food now. You know, you know, talk about Instagram and people taking photographs of what they're eating. Um, only one of the books that you review, um, Norma, brings uh, brings up food on stage. It seems quite surprising um, to me. What does what does Deborah Geis, um what does she bring to the table? Sorry, that is an unavoidable, <laughs> now, unnecessary. Can, can I just... <laughs> Yeah, can I just say we have managed to avoid until this moment, before, <laughs> until this moment, and it's jolly hard to do that, you know. Okay, so um, yeah, food on stage. I mean, um, I used to be fascinated by there was a period in theatre when all the plays seemed to depend on someone going to the sideboard and pouring a drink, but the business of actually cooking something on stage is of course very challenging and there was there's a, there's a I can't remember what it is now that there is a in one of these books um a play is described which actually involves cooking a complete meal from start to finish and um yeah I know I'm not I mean, I'm not sure that I would want to um no never work with children animals or things with flames <laughs> yeah or food <laughs> um Norma Clark, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. There is just so much to talk about. Um, and I sort of, it runs away with me. But last night, because obviously I knew that we were going to be talking about this, I was reading um, Marking Time, because you know I'm obsessed with Elizabeth Jane Howard. So I was reading Marking Time. And I had to, I had to get a pencil to underline this bit, just to, just to emphasise how it is everywhere. So it's the, a character's just um, visiting the Cazalet family. It's during the Second World War. He, he describes how back on the ship, uh, great haunches of lamb would appear either streaming with blood or black as your hat with unspeakable potatoes all grey and shiny like frightened people's faces. And it is just so evocative. It's, it's just a final unspeakable twist. Unspeakable potatoes is that's a very good title for a book or an album. <laughs> unspeakable <I think>. potatoes. <laughs> Still to come on the show, Russell Williams on a new novel by Jean-Philippe Toussaint about Eurocrats, which strives to recapture the effective landscape from the populists who have for so long dominated the scene. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Lucy, you drew my attention to Enola Holmes last week, a film adaptation of Nancy Springer's series of novels now on Netflix. Uh, This week, it's featured in the MB column on the back page of the TLS. So what's the story? Uh, The story is, in fact, that there is a lawsuit going on, that the Conan Doyle estate uh, has filed against the makers of it. And it's a bit complicated because as far as I understand it, Sherlock Holmes and the, the characters are not in copyright. And these sort of, uh, and, and most of the early stories are not in copyright, but the later developments are in copyright. And one of the later developments um, seems to be that, um, that Sherlock Holmes starts paying women some respect, which obviously Enola Holmes is doing. Um, and so they're, they're, they're sort of, that they're they're saying that that's an infringement. It's all a bit complicated, to be honest. It's amazing, isn't it, that that kind of a, a character development could be outside of of what you're allowed to to take. That you could kind of legislate against that because it hasn't it hasn't happened yet in in the chronology of what is in isn't in copyright. It's yeah, kind of baffling. It is, and and um, I mean they, they've they've had they've had lawsuits before about the characters apparently of Holmes and Watson. Uh, and they established this thing that the original characters were out of copyright, but the develop- later developments of them weren't. It, the mind boggles, really, because there must be 10 million versions of Sherlock Holmes and Watson. Well, you would think so. I mean, it's it's a warning to all kind of fan fictioneers, but there must be so many out there that you, you couldn't possibly begin to police it. No, yeah, I don't know how you could, really. Um, but the um, mysterious MC, who's the person who's written NB, says um, brilliantly at the end, the game is not afoot, it is stuck in chancery, uh-huh. which I think <laughs> maybe it will stay there for a bit. I think none of that has dented Enola Holmes, which is all doing quite well. Uh, but anyway, 2023 will be a big year. Uh, yes, because that's when everything, I think, comes out of copyright, if I understand it rightly. So so then... Um, then you can do what you want. With the whole of Sherlock Holmes and, and Watson's kind of character development, they will be entire for you to, for t- for you to use by that Yeah, point. it's funny that they're, I suppose it's just about money, isn't it? It's funny that they're so protective of it because Conan Doyle, he got completely fed up of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, that's why I tried to kill him yeah. and then I had to bring him back and was like, oh God, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. But I suppose you did all right for him. I live not far from um, East Dean, which is where Sherlock Holmes was when he was... He was rediscovered. It's where he went to be in hiding. Was it? Was he a beekeeper there? No, that's just when he retired. Is it? That's not where he retired to. I don't know. Is that maybe that is where he retired? 
should probably go back and check, but there is a plaque on the building. Oh, no, but I think, the, I think the retired one is maybe another addition to the canon. Do you know what? Real people who really know about this can write They're going to be hating us. us. <laughs> <laughs> can just tell us how wrong we are. Let's just move on. So elsewhere in NB, uh, we have another new word to add to your one at the top of the program that rather blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, this one is also kind of mind-blowing in that I can't, I can't believe that I've never known it because it applies to me quite, quite well. It's jolly good. Are you going to pronounce it or shall I? <laughs> I think you should. Well, I don't know. Lalocasia, do you think? Yeah, that's how I would have said it. Okay. And for what that's worth. Obviously, what it means is the use of swearing to alleviate stress and frustration. We all knew that, didn't we? Though, actually, it seems not to be completely new. It's been around for a while, but it's, it's in, the, in the literary news this week, isn't it? And it features for rather upsetting reasons. I know, because Susie Dent, who also um, writes for Oz, has published a, a book, uh, and the book is called Word Perfect, and guess what happened? They went to press with an early version, which uh, apparently is full of typos. So is, of course, not word perfect. So um, poor her. That's why she's um, talking about discovering that word, because that's probably what she needed to do. But NB also talks about that, that we get books in all the time at the office. Uh, the, the, he gives some examples. A book about George Eliot that spelt her name wrong on the spine. I've seen a couple of them, actually. Um, a book stuck in Upside Down. Classic. And there was apparently one, it was a hardback that um, said it was a study of the Brontes, but was in fact uh, accessible digital practices in higher education. Which is actually so, quite you know, different. It is quite different, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could learn something either way. I recommend that anyone listening who has just sent off their final manuscript go back and check again and then check compulsively until the very last minute. Exhausting, but apparently necessary. Also in the literary news this week has been the um, proliferation of books published this September. We've already talked about the autumn being a bumper year for books in the UK. And the same is true, of course, in France, where the rentrée littéraire is always an event. One of the novels recently published is Les Émotions by the Belgian writer Jean-Philippe Toussaint. If you're not familiar with him, don't worry, as Toussaint is a writer who operates, if not exactly under the radar, then shall we say around it. Um, and here to talk to us about Toussaint's latest book and his work in general is Russell Williams, an associate professor at the American University of Paris. Hi, Russell. This is Lucy. How are you doing? Everything seems to be fine, although five minutes ago, somebody the other side of the wall next to me started, um, started scraping. So if oh. they start scraping no. again... So if they, if sinister, if, it was actually maybe it's somebody trying to get through the wall to me. So if fingernails, <laughs> we'll say it's behind you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, if that happens, then then I'll then I'll move or, or fight them. Okay, so, brilliant. If you could <laughs> scream at them there. in in perfect French, that would be a brilliant um, interlude. I think. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a very a very tired Welsh infringed <laughs> French. I can just do. I can I can do. Um, and you're in Paris at the moment, aren't you? Can I ask first what, what it's like there at the moment with the bars closed, I think, but not the restaurants? Is that right? Yeah, well, <laughs> Paris has been uh, pretty bleak for about the last 10 days because completely atypically, it's been raining almost almost consistently for about, yeah, for, for, for about that length of time. Um, we're not used to that. We're also kind of filtering the closure of the bars and the restaurants and kind of work out what that actually means. And there's a lot of debate going on about what a restaurant looks like, what a cafe looks like. 
I think people recognize what a bar looks like. So there's a lot of confusion, really. And I don't know if I go out this afternoon for an early evening demi, will I be able to do that? And, and how have the bookshops fared? It's difficult to imagine social distancing happening very easily in, in Shakespeare and Co. I assume the beds have been removed, which is a very sad thought. Well, I haven't been down to Shakespeare and Company for a little while, um, so I'm sorry to say. Um, bookstores, however, seem to be rolling on. All of the bookstores that I frequent in my local area and in the centre of Paris seem to be be opening obviously they're taking all of the precautions there Every, everybody insists that you that you clean your hands repeatedly and everybody's masked up but la rentrée littéraire uh, the big unveiling of hundreds and hundreds of titles went ahead as planned most of the titles that were previewed came out there is um, what amounts to a active uh, promotion of those books so that the, the literary TV programs are still running. Authors are doing the rounds of signings. Obviously, the numbers are a lot less than you would expect, but you know there is a gallant effort to keep the wheels of literature turning over here. That's, that's good to hear. You do get the impression that no matter what was happening, that the rentrée would happen. You know, <laughs> People would talk about the books in September, whatever was going on. Um, and we're going to talk about a, a particular book, particular author. Can you, um, so we're going to talk about Jean-Philippe Toussaint and his book, Les Émotions. Can you sort of tell us about the premise of it? Uh, what kind of happens, where it sits within his body of work? Yeah, Tucson is, um, you mentioned at the start, he's something of a, of a UFO when it comes to French literature. He's, he's not entirely embraced into the experimental avant-garde. He's neither entirely embraced into the experimental fringes, um, but he's just kind of been there. And he's kind of grown to this strange totemic, if a little bit weird presence uh, over the last 20 years. His last kind of biggest project before the project he's doing at the moment uh, amounted to a four-volume chronicle, it's described as, called MMMM, um, which is uh, translated into English as the, the Marie Cycle, which is a beautiful, poignant exploration of the, essentially the breakdown of a relationship. Is it the narrator's relationship? Well, if not, it's somebody very close to the narrator. That came out... Uh, a couple of years ago in, in, a, in a beautiful volume. We weren't really expecting anything new from Toussaint. Um, and then all of a sudden, two years ago, uh, La Clé US Bay came out. And it looks like with that volume, with the new one, Les Emotions, it looks like a new cycle of his writing has started. But, and here's the uh, kind of clincher, it's not as exciting as the previous cycle. The previous cycle was a sexy story that spanned from Paris to Italy to Japan. This one tells a story of a Eurocrat. It's set in Belgium, it's set in Brussels. It's tinged by the drizzly Brussels weather. It doesn't have the same intercontinental pizzazz as the previous cycle. But what it does do is talk to our present historical moment. Never over the last few years have Eurocrats been so interesting. So to set one as your central protagonist is kind of an atypically political gesture for Toussaint. You know, he's never so far in his career been this politically engaged. You, you open your piece by saying, look, if, if you know, four, four or so years ago, if someone had published a book about Eurocrats, you know, set, you know, with a kind of middle-aged Eurocrat that worked in Brussels as the hero, people might have thought, oh, great. But now, 
as you say, it's incredibly, it's highly relevant and it's highly charged as well. It, it is, um, you know, the, the, the premise uh, four years ago um, certainly wouldn't have got pulses racing. Um, now, a pulse is going to be racing, I'm not so sure. But Europe's in the news, to say the least, you know. And I think people know who Ursula von der Leyen, Charles Michel, who these kind of leading figures are, particularly at the moment when, 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 when in the UK, Brexit is uh, reaching or looks to be reaching some kind of um, conclusion, point of tension, describe it how you, how you want. So the Eurocrats um, or the, the, the Brussels politicians, to maybe use a slightly more neutral term, um, have got the spotlight shined on them more than ever before, I think. It, it sounds like quite a leap from, from his, first, his first book, La Sève de Bain. Um, it, quite a considerable leap. <laughs> Is it a considerable leap? I'm not so sure. La Sève de Bain was a novel about a, quite a boring, average, middle-of-the-road guy who decides because he hasn't got considerably much better to do to stay in his bathroom. I suppose that's what I mean. It sounds like, I mean, because that sort of is in, is in one bathroom, whereas this is, it's something that is kind of tentacular in its reach. It's something that reaches out so much. It does, but it does so through enclosed spaces, through uh, conversations that take place in rooms, the conversations that take place in bedrooms, conversations that take place within confined environments. So the scenery is different, but you get the impression that the auto-fictional narrator of Toussaint's novels, it's, it, it's the same voice, it's the same identity, it's the same bemused exploration of that world, even if it does have different tectonic plates underneath it. And what's happening to the bemused auto-fictional narrator um, in this one? Well, this time... In the first volume of the cycle, it looks like things are going to get really racy. And one thing that Toussaint has done uh, repeatedly throughout his career is borrow from the crime genre. So it looks like it's going to turn, the novel looks like it's going to turn into uh, quite a, a racy thriller. And the narrator, even though he kind of keeps this kind of quite internally facing in um attitude actually starts to investigate what is on this mysterious USB key that he finds. We don't have quite the same intrigue in uh, Les Emotions. It's actually the, uh, the, the, the coming together of three different stories, three different fragments of the narrator's existence. The first and the third are relatively saucy, meaning that they are tinged with a certain eroticism. They both recount moments of, of of meeting a love interest. The first takes place at a think tank event in Aylesbury, just outside London, as it happens. The third takes place at a crisis meeting of the European Commission. The major heart of the novel, though, is actually very sad and centres around the death of the narrator's father. And there are very long passages that explore the funeral, that consider the passing of, uh, of his father um, in context also with uh, the breakdown um, of the narrator's uh, marriage. So it's, 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 it's a lot sadder, I think, than a lot of uh, Two Cents' previous work. It's still absurd. It's still strange. There are still many beautiful moments, but it's marked 
by a kind of profundity, but by a sad pathos um, that maybe his novels haven't quite had in the same way. And that departure of his father, who it turns out was himself uh, an, old, an ex-European commissioner, commissioner, is in some way symbolic of the crumbling, or so it's described, of the European dream. Toussaint's narrator is a European politician, or he, more precisely, he is involved in exploring future trends for the European Commission. It turns out his father, as I said, is an ex-European commissioner. His brother, too, was an architect involved in the redevelopment of the Berlaymont uh, building in Brussels. So they were all invested in this European dream. And then Brexit happening on the fringes of the text kind of coincides with the death of his father. So it's kind of, there's, a, there's the kind of poignant uh, sadness of that that is explored through the death of his father, maybe. This, and there's this new kind of more serious subject matter. And also his style, you say, is very, you say it's very quiet and low key. And he is stuck with um, this very particular publishing house, Les Editions de Minuit, uh, which is quite, it's actually well known for that style, isn't it? There's even a phrase for it. It's called Le Style de Minuit. Can you, can you unpack that a bit and where it came from? Well, yeah, the, um, it all harks back to the heady days of uh, 1968 and the years following when everybody got very excited by literary theory and started thinking about, okay, well, how can we use theoretical approaches to literature to deconstruct the realist novel, to deconstruct the literature that's appeared before? Um, of course, that, or one of the outputs of that was uh, the, the famous Nouveau Roman, or the, the, the new novel, as kind of made notorious by, uh, by Alain Robb-Grier. Um, and what were the practitioners of, of the Nouveau Roman trying to do? Well, they were trying to think about how they could reject the bourgeois conventions of, of kind of traditional French classical literature. And one of the big uh, voices in theorizing this was, of course, Roland Barthes. And this, essentially, uh, the Nouveau Roman found a, a publishing home at, a, at, as you said, the Les Editions de Minuit. And the style became very uh, stripped down, very neutral, very anti-literary. And I'm not sure whether we'd say strictly that Toussaint um, is a practitioner of the Nouveau Roman. I'm not sure uh, there are any practitioners of the Nouveau Roman alive in Paris of 2020, but he's certainly in that vein. He's certainly using his trimmed down yet perfectly chiseled sentences as a way of exploring what happens when we try and replicate reality through the novel. But, you know, he's a stylist. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I can't, I can't think of an equivalent for that in the English-speaking world. I can't think of one, you know, I just, off, off the top of my head, I can't think of a publisher which is equated with a particular style. It's quite a, it's quite a particular French thing. Yeah, no, it really is. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the underlying question here is, well, you know, does the style, the style minuit, uh, does it still exist? Um, and to what extent can you build a publishing house on a neutral style? And maybe the new Toussaint is, is proof that there is some, you know, that there is mileage in it, yeah. Um, and though you, you say it is, it's very quiet and uh, almost aims for a neutral style, the book is called 
emotion and you, you talk about a, a revelatory paragraph in which the the main character talks about um, public meaning political and private emotions what does he say there and why is it so important I'm glad you mentioned that Toussaint has never been a writer who wears his emotions on his sleeve he's never been a writer who takes the reader on a visceral journey into how he's feeling. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about Emmanuel Carrère at the moment, who's a very emotionally engaged writer and takes the reader with him into his, into his own personal sufferings as he does in his, in his most recent novel. So for, for Toussaint to, uh, to, to, to describe his novel as the emotions is a really interesting sign. What he does in this novel and what he does in the paragraph that you mentioned is it harks back to the end of uh, his previous novel where he says, I've always had a problem with expressing my emotions. This novel is an attempt, I think, to work through to explore his emotions. Um, that's done against a backdrop of what he describes, as you say, as, as the popular use of emotions. And he's thinking about politics. He's thinking about particularly populist politics. So he's thinking of your, your Nigel Farage's, your Donald Trump's, all of whom who make very clear, visceral, outrageous appeals to the emotions through media. And this is something that I think uh, Toussaint is, 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 is trying to interrogate. And, and in, in a really beautiful paragraph, he says that he's trying to reclaim emotion. And, and I've been thinking about this. And, and actually, you know, most of the people that I know and, and interact with on a daily basis aren't or don't spend their time in permanent states of, of, of patriotic fervor or outrage or revulsion. Their kind of emotional experience is concerned with what it means to get by on a day-to-day -day basis, what their payslip looks like, what it feels like to wait in line at the supermarket wearing a mask. And it's that kind of, you know, gesture-led emotion, that kind of small, lower-level pathos that I think Toussaint is exploring here. So he's kind of reclaiming the landscape of emotion, if you like, from the, the, the caricatured version that, that, that maybe we see played out on our media screens on a day-to-day a, on a, on a -day -day basis. And so do you think, Russell, do you, do you think this is his moment? Do you think this is his oh, magnum opus? I, I, I actually think his previous cycle, MMMM, uh, the, 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 the Marie cycle, I think that is probably going to go down as his, uh, as his greatest achievement you know, so far. Um, it, it's fascinating to see where this is going to go. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's been quietly discovered by the university critics, by the scholars who are kind, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a, a large scale colloquium into his work um, over here in France. I don't know. I don't think he wants the headlines. I can't see him. I, I, think, he's, I think he's too weird to win any of the big literary prizes, but I'm glad he's there. I'm glad he's writing. I'm glad he's continuing to chisel out the perfectly formed paragraphs that he's doing, I think any great media interest, any great success, you know, would possibly contaminate him. And I'm kind of quite happy that he, 
you know, he, 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 he remains on the fringes. Okay, in which case, taking my cue for you, I'm going to say we need to stop talking <laughs> about him now because otherwise it'll, it'll get too popular and you <laughs> won't like it. <laughs> but I want to say many thanks for talking to us about him, Russell. And thank you from, from a quiet Paris. Thank you. A pleasure. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to russell williams norma clark and to everyone who sent me notes on food and literature Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts and or subscribing to the TLS itself and do come back again next week. Until then, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.